Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. This is the 
the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is sensitive Andy Nelson. Hello. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're kicking off a new series on the films inspired by our first selection, Akira Kurosawa's 1954 classic, Seven Samurai. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast app, or join us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever had the urge to solve problems with your longsword, then you'd be perfect for The Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. This week, listener Brendo 61 played the role of the samurai, We Were the Bandits, and he took us to task right out of the gate on Image One. Didn't even let us get a shot off. This week's movie was 1955's Mr. Roberts, co-directed by John Ford and Mervyn Leroy, starring Henry Fonda, William Powell, Jack Lemmon, and James Cagney. Well, congrats anyway, Brendo61. You're once again (laughs) entered to win the 2016 Pony Prize. That was a spanking. Fast. Yes, it was. Fast and furious. We've got a blot spot, and this, I have to say, I'm going to say as a setup, Andy, this includes my very favorite line of any blot spot to date. (laughs) I love it. As with any movie in this style of film, there are some stories that are strong and some that are weak. I connect with some of the characters, but it never seems like any of them are around long enough for me to be satisfied with the handling of their story. It's like love actually for disease films. (laughs) Just when I'm starting to enjoy Liam Neeson and the kid, it switches over to Laura Linney. Same problem here. I liked it more this time, but still not a favorite at all. Your rank 64, my rank 130. This, of course, we're talking about Contagion, the final in our disease uh, series. And uh, Contagion is the love, actually, of disease films? Come on! (laughs) It's good. That's a good line. Brilliant. That should be on the poster. It should be. (laughs) Brilliant. I want to make a poster of Contagion that has that line on it with quoted by Ben Lott. All right, Andy, let's do trailers. Uh, Do you want to cry first or after? Let's cry first. Oh, Andy, I'm so excited about this movie because anytime I see Dev Patel in a movie or TV show or anything, I want to shake that dude's hand, give him a really good pat on the back. I really like Dev Patel. Am I alone? No, I love him. I think he's just fantastic and he's not in enough. He is, I'll tell you what he is in. He's in my best friends who haven't met me yet list, for sure. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, Dev Patel. We would have an awesome time. I can already tell. Did you enjoy Chappie? Oh, what? Who who couldn't enjoy Chappie? (laughs) (laughs) Did you enjoy The Last Airbender? Shut up. I loved that movie. I'm alone. I had a good time with that movie. I'm actually not being ironic there. Wow, okay. All you haters. I'm saying nothing. I'm saying nothing. Dev Patel is in Lion, upcoming film, co-starring Rooney Mara and Nicole Kidman. It's directed by Garth Davis. It's based on the uh, novel by Saru Brierly and Larry Batrose, uh, the screenplay adaptation by Luke Davies. Lion is a story of a, a, a five-year-old Indian boy who gets, uh, he is left on the on a train, and the train takes off from a train station in Calcutta, and next thing you know, he's been adopted by a couple in Australia, and he lives his life as uh, with this family, uh, and as he sort of recovers his the memories of his youth, he, he decides he's going to retrace his steps, returns to Calcutta, and tries to find his family. It's a great journey story. I think it looks like a really interesting one. It is. It, it, it showcases a really interesting culture and country, and he is, a, uh, I think, a wonderful voice to, to bring this story to screen. I love it. I love it. I love, love, love it. 
Uh, the trailer just is so right up my alley. It looks like a story I'm just going to be uh, completely just crazy for. I hope. I mean, it's it looks like a really touching story. It's got some really interesting stuff going on in it. Uh, Garth Davis is a is a big commercial director, and uh, although he did that um, Top of the Lake with Jane Campion, that um, that mini series that was mm-hmm. supposed to be, I heard a lot of really interesting things about it. Um, so I kind of um, I'm curious. Uh, kind of what uh how he's going to be as he kind of makes the shift um over to doing more features but um yeah especially because he really has done just mostly uh commercials i mean big commercials you know cadbury and xbox and and uh, toyota and all sorts of stuff so i mean um it's it's a great step for him and like you said death patel i mean he is great and uh, it has a really interesting cast i i really enjoy the people in it and it, the story looks really interesting i knew nothing about the book uh nothing about the true story that this is based on so i'm really curious about it and i want to see it now i'm really looking forward to it i think it sounds great it comes out november 25th 2016 so i think you know it, it will probably be my birthday movie yeah, it's going to be a big the Thanksgiving list. hit. Yeah, that's right. What's yours? Oh, Pete. <sighs> <laughs> so my trailer is for USS Indianapolis: Men of Courage. Now I picked this uh, because I, like so many people who have seen Jaws, probably know the story of the Indianapolis because Quint has a harrowing description of what happens with the Indianapolis. Right as as the, oh, yeah. the boat the boat gets sunk and then all the people go in the water and the sharks and you know uh, the, you know when you look at the sharks eyes the black eyes it's like doll's eyes you know and all that sort of great <laughs> stuff um, that's kind of all I know though and this was such a huge navy disaster um, that I I was like well they're making a movie about it I'm curious to see uh, how this turns out now it is a uh, Nicolas Cage movie. He plays the captain, and Tom Sizemore and Thomas Jane are in it. Um, I I don't know if any of that gives me hope. Um, and Mario Van Peebles is directing it, which I think is a very interesting choice that that he's coming on directing this. Um, I don't know. I, I really just don't know what to think about this whole thing. I, I want it to be good because I think it could be a really interesting story. But when you watch the trailer, it's like, well, there's a touch of Titanic in there. There's a touch of Jaws. There's a touch of, uh, you know, all of the, the military tribunal sorts of stories. A lot of stuff that uh, we've seen in other films all kind of turning up in this. It doesn't mean this is going to be uh, bad, but it doesn't mean it's going to be good. Um I don't know. I'm really torn, but I'm really curious about it because I am so curious about this story. And I always have been. And ever since, you know, Quint had that speech, I'm like, oh, that's a really an, an, an interesting story. I'd love to learn more about this. And of course, I've never sought more information on it. But now here's my chance. And I figured I'll at least give this one a rent. Yeah, I, I'm i I'm not convinced that this is, you know, my history of success at ranking how well movies are going to do in the box office is probably not that great. Uh, But I'm not convinced that this is going to do all that well because I think there are too many stories in here. I mean, you said it, not just connecting the, you know, Titanic and Jaws and all that. But I I think just, I I think we as audiences are challenged by too many uh, narrative shifts. And this is a story of Lost at Sea uh, and tragedy at sea. This is a story of war. This is a story of of politics and legalities. And I I think it just man I could not stay 
focused on the trailer. And if the the pacing of the trailer is any indication of the pacing of the film and all of the different angles that they're going to try to shoehorn into the film, I think that's setting it up for a big challenge. I, I should add, I don't know how you tell the story of the Indianapolis uh, in, not in a book when you have the real estate or a, or a miniseries. Like, this seems to me like a, a perfect uh, avenue for, like, a Netflix eight-parter. You know what I mean? Like, this... Uh, but but to do it in a let's say two and a half hour uh, feature, I think they're going to be challenged to keep uh, to keep people on track. I don't disagree with you. <laughs> All I'm saying is I'll probably watch it because it, it, at least I'm curious about it. Yeah. And if if an Indianapolis uh, Netflix eight part miniseries does come along, you know, I'll then watch I'll that too. That, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's kind of like White Squall. I don't know if you ever uh, remember that Ridley Scott movie with Jeff Bridges, where he's kind of the the captain on the boat, teaching all these boys, you know, how to be men. And it's it's kind of like uh, an interesting story, but then all of a sudden we have this harrowing boat wreck scene, yeah. and then then we have this tribunal at the end as they're making him accountable for all the kids that died on the boat, yeah, yeah. and it, it then but then there's this big dead poet society sort of moment, and it was really kind of a mishmash of different uh, uh, you know ways to feel as as you're going along, and it's like I don't know how I should be reacting anymore. That's exactly what this is going to be because the trailer it's like some heavy war stuff, but then you have these intense scenes in the water where the, the Sharks are all attacking. Oh, my God. And some of the reveals they gave in the trailer of the shark attacks were, they were a little ridiculous out of context. Yeah, it you was, know? It, was, it was like, uh, you know, a Sharknado sort of. It was, that's of. what it felt like. And it's unfortunate because this is such a good story. I, I look at it, uh, it seems so ripe for a Band of Brothers treatment or a From the Earth to the Moon treatment where you can sort of serialize or chapterize the different um, elements, you know, and, and different points of view. And, and so it kind of saddens me to see it reduced to a feature a little bit in this day and age. It does, but, you know, at the same time, the story will be out there and I'll be able to learn something. Yeah. All right. Or, so read, this or one, read a book. Or read a book. Yeah. I'll, I'll watch this one. So <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, there are, it says it's coming out everywhere in 2016. But right now, the Philippines are the only uh, place that has a release date in August 24th, which uh, already has happened. So um, I hmm. don't know. I, I don't wonder know what if, that means. If, I know. This may just be straight to video. Well, I can see it sooner. That's right. <laughs> so awesome. Oh, so funny. Oh, Andy, your head is on the block and you're only concerned with your whiskers. Aru sankan no chisana murani. Samurai no haka ga yotsu naranda. Seven Samurai, Andy. Seven Samurai. This is it's a big one. It's big, epic. It's epic. You can tell it's epic because it's over three hours long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I, I read something that that this was uh, the second uh, next to Gone with the Wind. This was the next longest uh, big success, cinema success. Yeah. Ask is how long of a list is that? I wonder. Big cinema successes at the three and a half hour mark. 
<laughs> I'd like to Can't see that, be that list. Long. I'd like to count that list on my fingers. This is a 1954. It is an epic historical drama adventure. It is um, uh, co-written, edited, and directed by Akira Kurosawa, and um, it's it's good. It's a good film. It's a good film. Now it it anchors uh, a new series for us. We're calling it the Seven Samurai Family series. Uh, what does this series represent for us, Andy? Why did we decide to do this? I think we decided to do this because, uh, I mean, obviously this film has had a lot of influence. Kurosawa has been a very influential filmmaker. And the fact that this film of his, I mean, a lot of his films have actually spurred remakes and, uh, and inspired by sorts of stories. This one, though, we ended up focusing on. And uh, I think it's just, you know, a chance to look at Kurosawa, how he influenced uh, people with his storytelling and how he was influenced by by some of these genres that uh, end up kind of re um, getting remade from him. Yes, it is. And I, I think that's actually a really interesting angle. It certainly was more interesting to me even than what Seven Samurai has gone on to influence is what influenced him and, and the place that this film has in history. It, it was released in 1954, uh, 1956 in the United States. And it, uh, it it really is representative of not just, you know, the, the period, the late 1580s, uh, the warring states period of Japan, but also the post-occupation uh, Japan of of um, you know the 1950s, and and this is a country that is trying to rebuild and resurrect. And and what does it symbolize? What does this this night this uh, 1500s take on? Uh, you know, samurai, rogue samurai protecting a village of, of farmers. What does it mean for rebuilding the nation of Japan? And, and uh, it, it represented so much change culturally, so much change sort of historically, in the, and, and launched such an era of uh, like films through the 50s and 60s that I think it's really worth, uh, it's worth watching closely. Absolutely, absolutely. It, did you, were you able to watch it in one sitting? It took a few. <laughs> it took a few sittings. Unfortunately, this is not a good film to try to watch in an evening after you've put the kids in bed. No, you know, it's tough. You know, by the time they're in bed and then you sit down for a three and a half hour film, it usually doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah. So it so, did take a few. Yeah. How did how did it hit you just in terms of of entertainment value? Let's uh, you know just did you enjoy watching it start to finish over however many days it took you? Well, this is one of those films that. Um, I feel like when I get into once I get started, it's like I, I'm never bored. It it's amazing how fluid the story moves. It's amazing how much interest I have in it as it's unfolding. How much I enjoy all of the characters. How funny it is. Um, the way that he constructs scenes and the way that he edits everything together is just so alive and kinetic. And I really um, I'm just drawn in right away. I, and I'm instantly connected to everybody. It's just it. It's such an easy film to connect to. I feel. I think yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the things that surprises me consistently about this film, I think, probably because now I've seen it several times straight through, uh, but it is so easy to pick up just about anywhere in the film. Scrub to any point in the film, and you pick it up and are just as engaged as starting it from scratch. So, um, like, it's pretty easy to serialize at three and a half hours. You could watch. 22 minutes a night and finish it in a TV season and you would love it still just as much as watching it in one film. <laughs> I, uh, I really enjoyed it in, in that regard. Um, I, I think it's, it's really fun. Um, 
and it's fun because it sort of changes the tone of some of the films that that you know we also had studied of Kurosawa's, you know, not films that we've done on this show, but certainly films we've mentioned, you know, Rashomon and, uh, you know, these these films that came before were really cerebral. Uh, and this film was just kinetic and uh, had such grit and action and violence. And um, it, I, I heard a, a, a critic say that uh, this was the first film, the period film, that he had seen that actually felt like he was watching contemporary society, modern society. Like it was, it, it was so perfectly architected as a cultural representation of the time that he was able to connect to it in a way that no other period film had done for him. And I couldn't shake that line or that, that process, that thought process when watching this film. It feels so much like a, a powerful statement on the time, even though it is such a dramatic period film. That's a really interesting point, and uh, I think that speaks to the way that Kurosawa just uses film. I mean, it's clear that he is a filmmaker who understands the tools that he is given and knows how to uh, put them to work to tell his story, whether it's the camera and the way that he moves the camera or the lenses he puts on the camera or the way that he cuts it and or the way that he has the actors uh, you know, um, in the frame. Um, everything is all uh, just smartly designed. And it's, it's just clear that it feels so modern. And I think that is what it is, is that um, this certainly doesn't feel like a lot of other, like even some Hollywood 50s feel, films that, that have a feel, like when I watch it, I'm like, well, it feels like a 50s film. This feels very modern, just the way that it's cut, the way that everything moves within it. Everything feels vibrant and alive. The way that the characters even interact, it, it just feels so much more um, alive than uh, and, and present. I, I feel like I'm really present with everything. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really fascinating thing about this film is just how well it sustains that, you know, that connection and that narrative as you watch it even today, um, you know. Uh, decades later. Um, it, it's a fascinating look at uh, so many things about Japan that it, it, it kind of pivot around this film. Um, one statement of Japanese filmmaking leading up to this point was that there, you know, it was a celebration sort of culturally of the Japanese war machine. And, uh, you know, the Japan... Uh, after the war had a had a, a long period of rebuilding and uh, many look at this film as something that served to reassert Japan for something that wasn't their military post-occupation, right? This is a film that even though it's violent and gritty and it is about ultimately battle, it it doesn't celebrate the battle as something to um, as as a thing of honor. In fact, many of the the heroic characters in the film actually shun the violence and actually regret the fact that the violence is happening. They do it out of honor, out of loyalty, out of bravery, out of fitness and responsibility to the group. Uh, but it is it, it is something that is done um, with with great respect and often dread, and I think that's a really interesting thing that he brings up in this uh, in this film. Another thing that is that that I think is fascinating is this loyalty to Lord. You know, it's called the Seven Samurai, but these guys are not actually samurai, right? They're disgraced. They have no Lord, uh, and and that is also a new thing that that uh, Kurosawa is is pivoting here from the the samurai stories that came before. 
Well, and we, when we say um, disgraced, we should make clear it's not like they were. It's not like a you know a, they were kicked out. Uh, a disgraced samurai is because their lord was killed, right? And they weren't able to find anyone else to hire them. Basically, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's a kind of a disgraced samurai, and that that kind of makes them a ronin. And now they kind of wander looking for work. I mean, they're they're unemployed knights looking for work. Is yes, what they are. That's right. Uh, and and so it it is uh, you know another one of these uh, uh, critics that I was uh, watching in this fantastic documentary on the the sources and inspirations of thematic inspirations of Seven Samurai uh, talks about how this same loyalty persists persists even today uh, you know loyalty to company is very much the the um, the the loyalty to Lord um, kind of aesthetic that that comes from these early days of the samurai I think that's a fascinating connection uh, but. Interestingly, proper samurai led very boring lives. Uh, they were, in some cases, called bureaucrats, right? They served at the pleasure of their lord. They weren't always of this glorious military, uh, glorious strategic um, uh, persona. They were often, um, you know, politicians uh, serving at the pleasure of their lord. And so um, that is one of the reasons that these these Ronin stories became so fascinating in Chinese culture, that these Ronin films, uh, in large part inspired by Seven Samurai, but certainly leading up to Seven Samurai through the, the 30s and 40s, were so great because regular samurai were super boring. It was the disgraced ones that actually had some excitement uh, in them. You know, They were the ones who actually broke the rules, and so it was kind of fun to more fun to watch them. So I thought that was a really interesting uh, angle. But even with the samurai, like, I mean, they had a whole genre, the Chambara, where, I mean, it was all just like the action and swordplay movies. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, we have all these different genres of, of these action films that would happen. I mean, obviously, Westerns uh, ties in pretty closely to the Chambara um, as far as, uh, you know, from our perspective. But, I mean, you could look at, you know, there's the the sword and sandal uh, films. I mean, all these different types of mm-hmm. genre films. And th- it was a very much a genre film. These were movies at the time that were really designed to just be action and sword play. And it was almost much more kabuki-like the way that um, they would move and everything. And, and the way that um, the, it was really focused on that sword play, on that action. And that's something that uh, Kurosawa actually looked at in these films because he didn't want to do a samurai film this was his first film that was uh, his first samurai film and and up until this point he'd been doing a variety of other films and and uh, period films certainly but uh, and maybe they might have had a samurai in them but it wasn't like a samurai film and he really was trying to avoid doing kind of one of these chambara types of just sword fight films and so he said you know i i'll i he can't he actually heard about this story of these farmers hiring um, hiring some samurai to pr- defend them from uh, from some bandits, and he had heard that uh, you know a real story of this, and and he's like, oh, that would be interesting, and so he, um, along with Shinobu Hashimoto and Hideo Oguni, uh, wrote this script apparently in six weeks, quite quick considering how long it is. But I guess they were you know they locked themselves away in some um, little uh, spa and just kind of stayed there and enjoyed themselves <laughs> writing for six weeks. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he wanted to make a samurai film that actually, uh, looked at all of this stuff in a much more realistic sort of way. You know, he had, um, these samurai, they, I mean, you, you have, uh, seven of them of all varying, 
um, skill sets. Um, but Kuzo, the the silent one, he's really only kind of the the real strong. Uh, type of sam- samurai that you would expect to see in kind of a samurai movie. The rest of them, I mean, it's it's really interesting. You have uh, Heihachi, who's just like, oh yeah, you know, I I, I you know I cho- I'm good at chopping, but you know, I'm usually the one who runs away or whatever he says. And then uh, and then when Kambei, uh, when he brings his old uh, buddy Shichiroji on to join him, um, uh, Shichiroji, uh, they're talking about how he was on the losing side of this thing and how he escaped this whole thing by basically hiding in the bushes until everybody had left. And it's like, these are, these <laughs> are the samurai? Great. Yeah. yeah, they're not great samurai. And I, I think that's really interesting that he kind of defines these samurai in ways that are... Um, not uh, uh, not the typical ones that you would find in the in the Chambara, and I think that uh, is what ends up making this film much more interesting. Well, it is. It's so funny. That's another theme that I think is is certainly rooted in reality, but also cross culturally uh, relevant. You know, I mean, we've we've uh, we've heard Washington himself, George Washington, said, you know, are these the men with which I shall defend our na- I shall build our country? I can't remember the exact quote, but that was the that was the the gist of it you know this is this is ridiculous we don't have the the you know they're coming up as drunks and and you know they're they're not samurai and yet we're going to build something out of them and and uh, I, I think that is one of the central themes of this film is how great it is when the the rogues become a team and that's one of the things that is is worth celebrating in Kurosawa's vision of of the Seven Samurai. Um, that that is something that we can connect with. That when we work together, we can achieve anything. Absolutely, I think it's interesting just to kind of put it in perspective for people. At the time when this movie came out uh, in 1954 in Japan, um, there were nearly. I mean. The movie industry was huge in Japan at this point. Uh, it, you know, look at uh, eight years earlier, 1946. They were only making about 67 films a year. By 1954, they were making nearly 400 films a year in Japan. It was a hugely uh, prolific film industry. I mean, it had 7,000 screens in the country of Japan. Um, it, it was crazy. Um, they didn't, and, and most of the films that they played were Japanese films. There were very few Hollywood or other foreign films that, I mean, they came in, but they weren't the big successful ones. Um, there were also very few TVs. It hadn't really invaded there yet. Um, and, and 50% of the films that were being made, uh, were samurai films, but not this type of samurai film. So it's really interesting just to kind of look at that perspective shift on on why he was maybe trying to avoid doing a samurai film, but then why he did and chose to do it in a way that made it stand out a little bit more. Well, what's another thing that's really interesting about it is when you look on what he had to or what he would have had to go through, I, I guess it, and I'm, it was unclear exactly what the turnover was. But leading up to 1952, when the occupation ended in Japan, up to that point, um, filmmakers had to have the the American forces had to approve all film projects, right? Because they it was it was a uh, you know they didn't want anything that would stir up any sort of foment rebellion, right? And and upset the people. And so um, you know many of these earlier samurai films were you know lacked the heart of the samurai, lacked the story of feudalism, lacked the story that would uh, incite action or or discontent. Uh, because they were not approved, uh, they those stories would not have been approved. In this case, he 
was able to do to deliver one of the very first commentaries on society and war and do it in a way that that delivered both the action and the heart. Uh, and and that is, in large part, as you say, what kickstarted the golden age of the samurai, samurai film well into the 60s. Absolutely. Yeah, it's I mean, this is kind of where it all kicked off and um, made it really international. Yeah. Before this, I mean, it was really just kind of a, a cultural thing in Japan. They hadn't really broken... Uh, into the international waters and and or at least in any big way and this was a this was a big change and you liked all the the swearing yeah it's just funny that a film again it's modern subtitles but um but i it's interesting it sounds like um you know the words were in there but just perhaps in the past they subtitled them in a way that was more, uh, you know, appropriate for the time in America. Uh, but now I think they they're okay, uh, kind of letting loose a little bit more. So it was just it was it was interesting to see because you don't hear that in films from the '50s so often, where somebody actually uh, you know throws a few little uh, swear words at you. <laughs> a, the, the Japanese are usually so polite. you just don't expect it uh wonderful quote kurosawa is one of the great poets of screen violence uh and and that is certainly i think on display here it is really artfully delivered and yet grittily uh displayed all of the samurai in the film that are killed of our seven samurai die uh, by guns uh and that is its own commentary yes it's uh it's interesting that um it's it it is really speaking to the way that this uh, that he saw these people changing and how this whole lifestyle was ending and you definitely see it at the end of the film the the samurai are done you know they they recognize this was a victory but it really is only a victory for the other people that they helped the farmers um, the samurai way of life is gone and it's just it's it's an interesting reflection that Kurosawa has on kind of uh, the the society at the time. What did you think about his just in terms of his the the inspiration that we see of other filmmakers in this film? There was this uh, contest that the Criterion Collection had when they were giving away this enormous box set of his, where you had to come up with something describing Kurosawa, and the winner uh, came up with your favorite director's favorite director which was short and quippy, but I think it actually defines it pretty well, where, you know, this is a guy who just understood the tools and and everybody was ripping him off or paying homage to him or whatever you want to say. Um, but I think it's also important to look at the people that uh, that he was influenced by. I mean, he clearly wasn't working in a vacuum. John Ford was hugely influential on Kurosawa. I mean, Kurosawa really enjoyed the Westerns and saw a lot of that... Um, uh, type of storytelling and the tools that John Ford was using as important ones that he incorporated into his own stuff. Fritz Lang, we've talked about Fritz Lang on the show. Um, and he was a big influence in Kurosawa. And of course, you know, Eisenstein, you know, the, the Russian filmmakers, some of the Western filmmakers, he really had a lot of uh, great influence um, coming at him. And he was able to adapt it and create something that ended up I think what happened is Kurosawa um, really tapped into the art form um, in, a, in a deep level and was able to do stuff with his storytelling that um, just overall created a lot of influence in the 
just in the industry as a whole. Well, it's one of the things that's so valuable about watching this film or makes it feel so familiar. And I think that's what makes it so easy to connect to for, you know, modern audiences because you've seen all of these things before. And that familiarity lets you, I think, move past the fact that it's a, a 1950s black and white foreign language film and still uh, makes it accessible. It really is. It's like, I mean, like we both said, it's so easy to get into. Yeah. You want to talk first shot, last shot? Yeah, let's. Uh, the, the first shot, I'll take the first shot. We open on this on long intro text, and it's telling the backstory of the the period of civil war that we are about to enter into, uh, and then we get horsemen coming over a backlit horizon. These are the bandits, but it doesn't matter. You've seen them coming over the horizon before. It is an incredibly uh, compelling image. Uh, it is kinetic. It's fast. It's moving. We learn that they are bandits coming back to pillage a village. Uh, that they had only just taken the fall of that year, so they ride off, promising to come back when there is more to take. But that opening shot, uh, the expanse of the of the horizon, it could be the West, it could be China, it could be Japan, uh, could be Europe. I mean, you really, you've seen it before. It's an easy image to connect with. That's the first shot. And the last shot, uh, it's after the end of the battle, and four of the seven samurai have been killed. And we uh, end with two of the three remaining samurai looking at the village as all the the villagers are are celebrating. They're all singing and planting the rice in their fields. Our third samurai, of course, has kind of stepped away as he's kind of torn between his his love for the girl and the samurai way, even though he knows he's going to take the samurai way. And these last two samurai have a conversation about how it's really this victory for uh, for these villagers and how it's kind of, I mean, acknowledging this is kind of the end of them. And then we we tilt up, we linger on those four graves on the hill, beautifully designed, uh, just very uh, artful in the in the perfect symmetry we have on the screen of the four um, the four mounds of earth with each with a sword stuck in it as we end kind of the end of the era for these guys we don't end on the happy villagers it's uh, it's very interesting you know um we end on the uh, the four dead samurai i love the connection between these two what begins with life even though we it begins with life of the bad guys it begins with life and it ends in death and i think that tells uh, its own story and i think it, it also just sets it up really well for um uh, for a just a place of time and, and just a sense of space that we're in. Um, I, I love that it does end on the dead samurai. I mean, it's called Seven Samurai. Obviously, the film focuses on them, not the villagers. That would be a totally different story. Um, you know, we have um, uh, a, a connection to the villagers, and we're enjoying the fact that there was this victory and they're happy and everything. But I think that smartly they they choose to end this story on on you know it, it starts with these bandits coming in to to do this raid and it ends with this uh, this powerful shot of these the samurai who had defended against these bandits now dead again it's just all part of this way of life the farmers they will kind of continue this thread of the farmers will always be there but this world of bandits and samurai it's it's all 
fading away. Yeah, it's back to that that theme of regret and and uh, what hath we wrought? You know, this is what fighting leads to, and this is what our fighting has led to in Japan in the 50s, and this is what it looks like. Um, it, it all ends in graves on a hill. And so many of these bandits, what I think is interesting is um, the bandits often were uh, ronin. The, you know, when they couldn't find anyone to work with, they couldn't get any jobs or anything, they would become bandits. And it's entirely possible that this group of bandits that our seven samurai are fighting against are all are, are all ex-samurai themselves. Right, right. Let's talk about the cast. Great, great cast. Let's, begin, let's start with the samurai. Yes. Is it fair to say the biggest name... Uh, uh, is Toshiro Mifune as Kikuchio? I think that's definitely fair. I mean, uh, Mifune, I think, is is probably the biggest one. I mean, he's the one who really broke uh, broke out internationally. He had done uh, 16 films with Kurosawa. He'd done a lot of stuff with him um, and was just a very busy actor. But he's really the one who broke internationally out of this out of this group i mean he's kind of he became very much an international face uh you know popping up in all sorts of things i mean even uh i mean geez wasn't he in um 1941 yes right that's right (laughs) yeah so uh, you know he's uh he's one of those guys that became very much an international representation of japan and I think, uh, I mean, he's just, he's an actor who, I mean, I love watching him. And I've seen every uh, film that he's done with Kurosawa, plus a, a good handful of other ones. And I mean, I just, I find him just fascinating to watch. He's just, he's mesmerizing on the screen. He was originally cast as Kyuzo, uh, one of the other samurai, the silent samurai. Uh, but uh, Kurosawa said that, you know, six sober samurai were a bore. So they needed they needed a character that was more off the wall, and hence the seventh samurai is born. Uh, and uh, they cast him as Kikuchio. They gave him a lot of freedom to improvise uh, and and actually play with the character and do the drunk act and and um, have have a lot of fun with it. He's an interesting character when we meet him because he's he's a thug. He has this great big long sword, which is this sign of just masculinity, and, and, and he's like dominates. He can hardly he, he, it's super awkward he's carrying it like a log over his shoulder but he doesn't have the short sword and that is the mark of the samurai they always carry these two swords and uh, or, or the the sword and the long dagger and he doesn't have that so when you see him even when he says he's a samurai you know immediately first by his behavior second by his garb that he is not a samurai uh, but every bit lives up to the ethic uh, you know throughout over the course of the film and uh, and marks is an interesting change character and and you know something to say about these guys is just how busy they all were. I mean, we already I already talked about how many films uh, they were all cranking out in uh, Japan. But I mean, yeah, I mean Mifune just in uh, in this year. I mean, he was doing just a whole bunch of films um, at the same time or like around this one. I mean, Seven Samurai, Samurai One, Musashi Miyamoto, The Sound of Waves, The Black Fury. They all came out in 1954. Uh, I mean, just. Just incredibly, incredibly um, busy people making films. 182 credits this man has. Takashi Shimura played uh, Kambe Shimada. I wish I had the temperament to be Kambe. <laughs> I could be. I could be more Kambe. I dig this guy. He's absolutely my favorite character in the film. Yeah, and Takashi Shimura, he's another guy who's done a lot of stuff with Kurosawa, and I really enjoy uh, another guy I just really enjoy watching. I don't know if I've seen anything that he's done um, outside 
of Kurosawa films. Even Godzilla, I feel shame that I have not actually seen that original film ever. You see his um, his credits? I know. He's another one. 249 credits. Yeah. Busy, busy, busy. Busy, busy guy. Yeah. Not just uh, 1954, he has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine credits. <laughs> So, including Godzilla. So, yeah, yeah, he was a he was a very busy guy and uh, did a lot of stuff with um, uh, with Kurosawa. Uh, One of my favorites is Ikiru. uh, His role in that film, oh man, that that film just really is a touching, touching film. And his moment on the swing in that film is uh, just—it's a really powerful thing. Truly, Um, I, I really enjoyed Takashi Shimura, and I think he brings so much presence to the role of. Uh, of Kambe. It's great seeing him. I love it. I mean, I, I think what is so interesting is right out of the gate when you meet him, this is this samurai who, without saying any words, you see him cut his top knot off, which, you know, if you've ever seen a movie like Harakiri, you realize that as, as that uh, samurai is running around uh, fighting everybody, when he beats somebody, he cuts their top knots off knowing that they'll be so shamed that they will just uh, kill themselves. Yeah, right. He doesn't have to actually kill them. And that's what's so interesting here is this is the samurai who willingly is cutting his top knot off and then shaves his head so that he can go save this child. And it's an amazing setup. And I love how they do it. You don't really know what's going on. It creates this incredible mystery right out of the gate. And and, and it's, it gives you this introduction to this character who brings so much... Um, uh, pathos to the story and is this uh, just a really interesting connection as he um, as he kind of guides this group and creates this group and then helps these villagers it's it's really touching and uh, and then also I just love how he ends up having this thing where he's always kind of rubbing his head which I, I don't know it just it seems to really humble him quite a bit or at right. least it makes it feel that way for me right oh I absolutely agree you know it's interesting uh, it's a good enough time to bring up uh, Ijiro Tono as the thief we don't see much of of uh, Ijiro Tono as the thief but again in this opening segment where uh, uh Kambe shaves the top knot. He's going in to to mimic uh, or to impersonate a monk so that he can get close enough and actually uh, rescue this child. Roger Ebert has an interesting comment. I you know I share it because I haven't seen all the films that Roger Ebert had seen to actually back it up. But he says this is one of the very first films that uses this plot device, introducing our hero. Uh, in a fashion that is not related to the overall plot of the film, a dramatic rescue that Kambe re- rescues this child, kills the thief, and then goes on about the business of the film, um, that's a trope that started, if not here, this was uh, deeply influential to all of those other films that we see. Pretty much name a Marvel film and you've seen this trope. Um, this is this is the superhero introduction, and I think it's uh, it felt again so familiar. It's so funny that it's uh, it's so true. Yeah. It really is. It's it's a really interesting uh, scene. Um, I I would think that Ebert's probably right. I mean, I can't think of anything before that where this would have happened, but yeah. you know, yeah, um, I, I haven't again. either. It, it's it's been mimicked so many times in the. Six and a half decades hence. It's fascinating. Daisuke Kato as Shichiroji, the chief of staff to Kambe. There's a great bond between him and uh, and Kambe. 
that I think is really interesting. And something that I think the screenwriters do so well here is they don't feel the need to overwrite the connection between these two. You have a few scenes, uh, really just that one conversation scene that I already talked about, um, about how he was, uh, you know, he hid to get away from that uh, uh, when his team was losing. And um, uh, that's kind of it as far as creating this backstory between these characters. And it's great. It's, it's, it's really kind of all you need there. And then the fact that they have that final conversation, I think, really just reaffirms this place that these two guys have and, and how they have gone through this many times. Uh, it's, it's great. I love these two together. Yeah, I, I do too. And I, I love that, um, you know, this is another one of those films. I mean, he's got 209 credits, um, Daisuke, Daisuke Kato. And again, he, it's like this whole cast just moves from movie to movie, you know, Seven Samurai, Yojimbo, Rashomon, Ikuru, uh, they're, they're in all of them. And uh, I think that's just, uh, they make such a fantastic team. Absolutely. An on-screen team, if not a literal team. Right. Uh, They're they're great. Isao Kimura as Katsushiro. He makes me laugh uh, rather unintentionally. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Kurosawa intended it. But he's like so fey and he's so um, just he's such like that that rich boy. And just the way he goes about doing everything just cracks me up. It's just, you know, he the way he, that he runs, everything is just, you know, this rich boy who's who's just dabbling in this world of, of samurai is just how it seems to me all the time. But I really like it. And, and that's the strength of the film is that you have these characters where um, they, they may seem a little comical, but they fit in. And this is this guy who's this young kid and he doesn't really, he hasn't been broken in yet. And you get to kind of see him get broken in, not just to the world of being a samurai, but also to manhood, really. It's such a well-placed kind of awakening, a well-paced awakening for him. I really enjoy him in this film. He's not he's not the annoying character for me you know it's it, it, he's i i felt like i could really connect with him he 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 attached to something in my youth well and what's interesting is is he is the only one who really gets a uh, a, a point of view shot there's a point where he's laying in the field of flowers um, dreamily looking up at the trees blowing in the wind over his head and we get a pov shot and it's it's i was trying to figure out why kurosawa chose to put the POV in at that point. And it's like, is he, is he wanting us to identify with this particular character more than the others? Uh, I had a little bit of sense of that. Like he's the, he's the newbie being introduced to this world. And I thought, well, maybe Kurosawa was saying, you know, we're the newbies. We're the ones that he wants us to, um, uh, take us on this journey with uh, along with him and uh, and uh, experience it through his eyes. It's kind of how I took that. You know, I did too. I mean, I, I look at him as the Kurosawa character in, in many respects. Like, uh, you know, I, I think if you look at um, young Kurosawa as uh, Katsushiro and wise Kurosawa as Kambe, you get the amalgam of, of you know, his demeanor as a, as a human, not as a filmmaker. And so... Uh, I I enjoyed thinking of it that way. And he also has been in another a number of other Kurosawa films, right. High and Low, Ikiru, Stray Dog. I mean, yeah. all these guys just uh, uh, clearly love right. working for him. Uh, Minoru Chiaki is Heihachi. 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 The woodchopper. He is a fencer <laughs> of the woodcutting school. Oh, uh, he's great. He is uh, just a, a funny guy. I love his bit when he's talking about chopping the wood and everything. 
He's a, yeah. And again, Rashomon, the hidden fortress. Ikiru. <laughs> Ikiru. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got uh, the the two more uh, samurai, Seiji Miyaguchi as Kyozu. He is the silent Zen swordsman. He's the one who's, I think, probably most interesting to me. Um, he is uh, often compared to this archetype of Miyamoto Musashi. And uh, Musashi was a very, very famous figure uh, in uh, in Japanese history. He was a, a swordsman, a, a warrior, a ronin, and he's one of those, like his supposed record is that he's undefeated for supposedly over 60 duels, uh, which is nearly double the next most legendary swordsman in Japan, in historic Japan. He is He, he wrote a, a, a book called The Book of Five Rings on strategy and tactics, but he is also... Uh, one of these guys who uh, became uh, a fictional character based on his own archetype over many hundreds of years of storytelling about him. And so this Musashi type is what you see in Kyozu, the Zen swordsman. You have this, you know, he is he's quiet. He focuses on nothing else but his artistry with his weapon. And, um, and I, I think Seiji Miyaguchi displays the Musashi type with a plumb. He's, uh, he really, I, I agree completely. He does carry that so well. And it's interesting that he is the one that was singled out uh, for the Menichi Film Award as the best supporting actor. Uh, this was a, a Japanese film award at the time. And uh, yeah, he is the one who ended up uh, walking away with an award for this film. There, I think there is something about that uh, Zen swordsman that people really uh, were drawn to. And again, more Kurosawa films, The Bad yeah. Sleep Well. Uh, he was in uh, Throne of Blood. He was in uh, this. He was in uh, Ikiru. Yoshio Inaba as Gorobe Katayama. Uh, he was the first to join the band. He was just kind of the happy, happy guy. He's really funny. Uh, he's he his sense of humor ties the group together, and I just really enjoy him. And again, Throne of Blood. He was also in Harakiri, the movie I already mentioned. They get around these guys. Yes, they do. Uh, Gorobe's joviality made it hard to watch him go. It did. It That's really too did. Bad, too bad. Let's talk a little bit about the farmers. Yeah, I don't know if I have much to say uh, about them, but I mean, the group was great. Rikichi, Manzo, Musuke, Yohei, uh, plus Shino, uh, the girl. Um, and, of course, the old man and the old woman. It's a great group of people. Kurosawa does such a great job of casting faces. And I, I really enjoy all the different... Um, uh, just They all feel genuine. I, I, he, his casting kind of reminded me of the Coen brothers in that uh, he would find great faces to do these roles. Like the old man. Uh, I love man. that comparison. That's awesome. It's it's such a perfect face for that guy sitting there, you know, stubborn, totally. refusing to leave the old mill. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's This is practically, oh, brother, where art thou in Japan <laughs> in the 1580s? <laughs> I think that's exactly what he was going that's for. That's exactly what he was shooting for. <laughs> it, I think it's so interesting culturally that these guys, you know, this is this is the big matchup, right? We have these guys, these samurai, who take on this job knowing that they're going to be paid in, you know, food, like rice. There's no money to be made of this thing. They're taking it on out of a sense of the sense of samurai responsibility. And they're fighting for people who aren't that great. Like they fight all the time. They're they're sometimes not very nice to each other. Like it it, it kind of begs to ask, what are they fighting for? And yet, 
that is part of the mission of the film. I think the 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 gestalt of the film is really to teach us all that when we, uh, you know, when we when we fight together, when we think about our ourselves together, and Kambe says this, you know, we we will survive. If you think about only yourself, you you die, and and again, that sense of responsibility. I think uh, Kurosawa really gets that across here um, by the end of the film, and it's hard work because again, these farmers aren't that great. No, yeah, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting group, and I mean, I feel like. Uh, you get that great um, speech by Kikuchio about you know the place that the, the the farmers have and how untrustworthy they are and how they kill the samurai and all that. But then you also kind of get him relating that to the samurai and how it's really the samurai's fault that they're this way. And I thought that was so interesting and how there's really no um, there's no one who um, is is perfect. Everybody has issues and. I thought that was such an interesting way to kind of explore this and how it's this it's the nature of the world and you're not really going to be able to break free especially in this society where it's it's all these castes exist and you're not allowed to leave them. I mean, a samurai couldn't just go stop, you know, fighting when he lost his master and just say, "Hey, I'll I'll just, I'll just be a farmer now." They weren't allowed to do that. You know, mm-hmm. you, a farmer couldn't say, well, I, I think I'm going to go off and, and become a samurai. You weren't allowed to do that. You had to be born into it. And only rarely was a woman able to actually kind of marry out of an area that she was in, but very rarely. And so, again, that's why it's such a, you know, where, why Monzo is so upset when um, when his daughter actually uh, sleeps with um, uh, Katsushiro. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, I, I just find it, um, it's, it's interesting, I think. Let's talk about getting it made. Long shoot. Long, long shoot. This was a long shoot. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it was 148 shooting days over the course of a year. Production closed down at least twice, although I heard four times um, because of budgetary reasons. The budget just kept kept, uh, getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and... Uh, Kurosawa just would say, well, you know, he like I think twice it shut down production because they had to go out and find more money and he just would go fishing. And he's just <laughs> like, well, they're not going to stop making the movie. They've already put all this money into it. And he would just kind of go <laughs> fishing and just chill until they found the money and then he'd come back and keep working. <laughs> he's a smart oh, guy. I smart would guy. love to see somebody try that nowadays. Yeah, right. Would never uh, fly. He he uh, he ended up uh, building this uh, this film. Ended up building a lot. Um, he was adamant that it must be uh, that that it must be filmed in this village. He wanted it to look and feel and be as authentic as possible. He said that uh, um, it, it was just the kind of picture that is impossible to make in this country. Uh, because the expectation at the time was you were going to shoot in the studio, you were going to use studio props and backlots, and he said, no, we're going to build this village, and it's going to hurt us. It's going to be hard to shoot. It's going to be hard to wrangle our cameras around and our equipment because this place is not going to be built for, um, you know, for shooting as a shooting stage, but it's going to look great. Uh, and, in fact, that ends up being, uh, spoiler alert, uh, what many of the early awards were. Um at least, at least directed toward the nominations were at least directed toward was just the the incredible authenticity the look and feel of the film yes yes indeed let's talk about asakazu nakai and cinematography paired with kurosawa they were able to really create um uh, just a lot of amazing stuff in this film 
um, you've got uh, just the the way that the camera would move and it would track. You've got some. I, I was mesmerized when they were sitting in the uh, in the old mill talking to the uh, the old man, and you start on the old man's face, and then the camera kind of pulls back and spins around him to reveal uh, uh, Kambe sitting there next to him. And then, um, and then you cut to another side of the old man, and the camera pulls back and it reveals some of the other samurai sitting on another side of him. And then you do the same thing again, and you pull back a different direction, and you reveal more samurai. I'm like, God, that's such interesting filmmaking. It's 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 so visually um, uh, appealing, and it's such a unique way to tell the story and, and get people interested. Um, Kurosawa just uh, you know he would do a lot of uh, a lot of great camera work, whether it's incorporating slow motion into uh, his action like when the the thief dies uh, we already talked about the thief scene when the thief dies it's all slow-mo and you and it was really kind of one of the first people to incorporate slow motion into an action like that it was interesting the way that he would use long lenses or dolly moves or or um, the wide angle compositions i mean it's, it's fascinating production stuff I think so too and it, you know pretty much anytime you get somebody who dies in a dramatic you know sword battle you got this fantastic slow motion fall. Uh, and the thing that I found myself really centering on every time somebody fell was just the amount of dirt and filth that ends up just bursting up from the ground. Like it's there, it is so uh, beautifully captured this sense of just filth and desolation after such battle uh, takes place in this little village. It's just gorgeous. Well, it's it's an interesting um, connection that he has tying these stories to nature, I think, mm-hmm. um, because that certainly is a theme that runs through his films, is just the connection to nature. And here you've got, I mean, there's so much dirt, like when the wind blows. I mean, it is really dusty dirt, <laughs> dusty wind. Like, it's just so much, it's just dirt blowing by. When it rains, it is, in it, it's just a it's torrential a downpour. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, everything is just uh, extreme. And you get that really interesting connection with these guys with nature. And um, I, I just think it's fascinating. And I, I love um, going back to just the, the, the framing and stuff, but the way that he would frame his shots. I mean, such interesting compositions, whether it was a wide angle um, and you have like all seven samurai in a shot and the village and everything. Or if it's if it's a group of people sitting in a room, he really I mean you could tell that this was a guy who studied a lot of uh, artists. Uh, you could tell that there was a painterly quality the way that he would uh, line his people up or have them framed. Um, just some beautiful shots. Um, at, like there's a shot early going back to the thief scene when you have um, our farmers talking, trying to figure out what's going on. Just as they walk out of frame, you have a woman in the far distance. Um, run out of the house and run all the way forward. As she runs forward, the camera tracks back with her. We see that she's carrying some rice balls and she comes and joins the group and gives these rice balls to uh, Kambe. And we find out, oh, you know, he has requested these. And obviously it plays into the story. But it's like there's there's never a wasted moment in his films. And I, I think that there's uh, a real skill in finding the right way to do that. Production design, Takahashi Matsuyama. Art does direction, So Matsuyama. And costumes, Kohai Izaki and Miko Yamaguchi. Um, you know, I, I think that ties so beautifully into the way he uses the camera, certainly the way this place is built. Uh, it was it, the, the village itself was built in Tagata on the Izu Peninsula 
Shizuoka. I think there's only one city, if I read correctly, that is to this day still exists in this area of Japan. But he built this from scratch and decked it out with just beautiful period work. And this ended up being quite a departure from the films, uh, as we alluded to already, the films of the of the 30s um, depicting these wars. They were much more theatrical. Yeah, we were removed from that uh, that kabuki type of uh, production, the champara. Everything uh, is done in a much more realistic sort of way, even though he didn't go into this saying, oh, I'm going to make a serious period story about this. He went in saying, I'm going to make an entertaining film um, uh, that, that people can really enjoy and get into. But he wanted to do it in a really, really realistic way, which I think, uh, I think works really nicely here. Except, I will say, except for the bald caps. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely period bald caps. <laughs> Were they? Was that, That's the, was that the big thing back yeah, then? It was authentic. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes the makeup did seem like it was going a little kabuki, um, like when, uh, when uh, Kikuchio comes in drunk when he's kind of introduced to the whole group and they and uh, Katsushiro bops him on the head. Um, his look seems a little more on the Kabuki side. And sometimes the um, the guy who brings uh, Kikuchio in, I can't remember that character's name, but um, he seemed a little uh, a little Kabuki. Like there were some characters who were a little broad. Yes, I would, I would agree with that. But for the most part, pretty authentic. Not pretty authentic. as authentic as... The uh, arrows. No, <laughs> those are authentic. <laughs> those were really authentic. Yeah, they were saying, and uh, you know, I don't, I, I can't one hundred percent verify, but what it sounded like is what these guys were doing is to create the the arrow effects. They were just using real arrows, and so <laughs> when somebody would get shot other. with an arrow, they would have like you know, plank of wood in their like under their clothes, and um, an expert, uh, uh, you know, uh, archer standing off screen who would shoot an arrow into the block of wood that is so horrible ah uh, yeah i i would love to see some behind the scenes photos of this happening just to just to prove it because it sounds so yeah. it sounds so wrong but at the same time it's like you know well what are we going to do how are we going to do it oh i know let's just use a real arrow well it's the same thing too i mean didn't they burn everything yeah, they did. I mean, they, real uh, fire in the right. In the village. Yeah, and Kurosawa is a, like a fear of fire, but uh, the, all the stuff that they uh, they burned. I mean, they really burned it. And when that uh, old mill goes down, man, that whole thing, or the how the the place where the bandits live. I mean, that's a really interesting uh, scene. And actually, we didn't uh, we didn't talk about that, but something that Kurosawa uses, I think, really effectively in the film is also the the way that he would go um, from from silence to sound. And I think. The scene when the the three samurai uh, infiltrate the uh, bandits' uh, lair and they they burn that place down, you see that there's this woman inside there, and it's it's this heartbreaking moment when she sees the fire, and at first she has a moment of terror, and all the bandits are sleeping, um, and then it's like this 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 look of uh, calm and release comes over her face, like I can finally be done with this. Uh, and it really kind of is shocking. And it's all done silently. You don't, you, there's no speaking at all. You just see all of this happen. And then, of course, it's incredibly tragic as you realize it's Rikichi's wife. Mm -hmm. She sees him. She ends up coming out and she sees him. And she's so horrified. She doesn't want him to 
see her as somebody who's been sullied and she runs back into the the burning building and dies it's just it's tragic. so tragic but uh, it's all done without any speaking and it's just uh you know an expert filmmaker at work much of the grit in the fighting comes from yoshio sujino uh who i, I think this was his first film he was a, a a career martial artist and teacher uh he studied with the the founder of judo and the founder of aikido in the 20s and 30s and uh opened up his own uh, dojo in uh, Kawasaki, Japan. During World War II, he lost his his dojo and everything. He moved to Fukushima. He continued doing his training. Ended up being asked personally by uh, uh, by the the Kurosawa team to to come and train in sword work uh, for all the actors on Seven Samurai, and that that started his career as a as a film person in the 1950s. Um, I thought that was very interesting. So huh, doing all the sword play Sujino, yeah, doing all yeah. the sword work, yeah. Very so, cool. There you go. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about editing. Uh, Kurosawa edited this thing. Yeah, and I guess what he would do is he would go back uh, at the end of a long day of filming and, and sit in an edit bay and edit. And you know, he really felt that the only way when when you're working on uh, such a massive scale of a story, the only way to really uh, have a handle on it is to constantly be editing it. And, uh, you know, I think he does a, a great job um, creating the story here. And everybody says, you know, he is an editor. Like, he is a, a master editor. He knows how to cut stuff together. And I think it's definitely clear here. I mean, he he cut this together well. He's really good at intercutting the action together. The way that he incorporates wipes and dissolves, I think that's really interesting. I think George Lucas definitely uh, pulled that from him. Oh, the way that he cuts yeah. on movement. I mean, everything that he does in the editing here, I found really interesting. The one that always sticks in my head is when they're going to the bandit's place and you've got that great pan down like the side of the hill. And just as you almost get to the bottom where I'm assuming where they are, then it wipes across from like left to right. And it's it creates this weird like diagonal like what's going on uh, moment. Uh, as it as it kind of wipes to them in there, it's uh, it's interesting the way that he chose to do that one. Absolutely, and uh, Fumio Hayasaka did the music. Uh, did you do, have you listened to the score isolated? I have. Yes. Is it is it one that you return to time and again? No, I don't think so. But um, you know, it's rare for me to return to scores from the fifties that often. Um, I still like the themes. I think they're good themes. Um, I just don't uh, return to them. I think it's great music. I think it fits well in context of the film. But yeah, I just I don't return to it too often. Was it his last film or his last film with Kurosawa? His last film with Kurosawa. They were great friends from early on in their in their lives. And uh, yeah, he got I, it's really sick or something. I'm not exactly sure what happened to him, but he ended up dying. Um, he got he was on his deathbed shortly after this film and uh, still ended up writing like three or four more other scores from his deathbed before <laughs> he uh, before he died. But uh, yeah, he uh, he uh, didn't have he only was 41 when he passed away. Oh, that is a huge shame. My goodness. Uh, and, and only <laughs> only 50 credits, 50 credits in his 15 year career. Yeah. Yeah, tuberculosis is what he died from. Uh, tuberculosis. Um, the the release in the U.S. We we've sort of talked about this when these 
foreign films get butchered for U.S. release. Uh, did that happen here, or did we get in the 1956 release? Did we get the whole thing? No, it was truncated. Um, Toho uh, was really afraid that uh, foreign markets would not jump on this three and a half hour film, and so they chopped it. Um, they, I think, they brought it down to uh, they cut I think almost a whole hour out of it. Fifty minutes is what they cut out. Um, and not just in the U.S. I mean, uh, other areas around the world, too. They, they kind of truncated this whole thing to make it, quote, more palatable. And it wasn't until um, 2006, can you believe that, Ugh. that an actual complete 207-minute uh, version was uh, restored and released in the U.S., um, yeah, it's crazy to think that it uh, took that long. I mean, there were other versions, uh, you know, it, there was a 198 minute version on VHS, uh, 190 minute, um, then at, uh, 203 and then finally the 207. So it's not like by that point, it's not like people were missing that many, uh, minutes of it, sure. but, uh, but leave it to Criterion to uh, to get it all uh, digitally remastered and restored. We've already talked about where the attention was initially for the awards in this film. Um, what did it did it win anything of import? Well, yeah, I mean, it did get two Oscar nominations when it was released uh, in the U.S. But I think the thing that was um, probably most important for it was. In uh, in Venice, um, that Kurosawa actually did uh, win a. Uh, it was nominated. He was nominated for a Golden Lion. He ended up winning the Silver Lion at the Venice Film Festival in '54, and I think that was um, just a really big thing. I, I don't know. Um, I'm not quite sure of the whole story if he was the first uh, Japanese filmmaker to do so or what, but it certainly put him on the map as kind of an international player somebody for people to pay attention to. And so that, that that was kind of a big one. We're talking about remakes. A lot of that is why we're here. But of the remakes of Note, what do you think are the ones that that, uh, that we should pay attention to? Well, according to, uh, um, if you look at the films, uh, the number of times that this ended up getting remade, obviously The Magnificent Seven is a big one. Um, that is uh, pretty, uh, uh, six years after this um, was made, um, but then it's like uh, there's all these you know different versions. Um, I mean, if you if you kind of scroll through the uh, the page over on IMDb, uh, you realize wow, a lot of people kind of took this. There was a uh, a Lithuanian version in 1966. In 67, there was a version called Kill a Dragon, Duel of the Seven Tigers um, in 79. Of course, the the unofficial uh, kind of the version that uh, was unauthorized by Roger Corman, Battle Beyond the Stars, 1980. You've got an Italian version, a Russian version, a Chinese version, um, all these different versions. Of course, there's the animated remake in 2004, Samurai 7. Um, there was, a, a, you know, um, of course, the new, the new remake of The Magnificent Seven, remaking the original... Magnificent uh, Seven. Of this. <laughs> so, uh, it's, yeah, it's been done a lot, not to mention films that have been influenced by it. And, and we're going to be talking about some direct remakes along with uh, some influence, uh, some f- movies that were influenced by it. All right, how'd it do? Uh, you know, this film did well. This was a, a big, big box office uh, smash over there in Japan. It was the third, uh, third highest uh, uh, grossing film of the year, uh, for Japan. This film was released April 26, 1954. 
it cost $347,222 to make, which is about $3 million, which really blows my mind mm-hmm. that uh, a three-and-a-half-hour film only cost $3 million to make. Yeah. God. I guess it just shows how far the yen was going at the time when they made this. Um, this ended up making, um, domestically here in the U.S., only about $271,841, which is about $2.3 million. Over in uh, Japan, it made seven hundred forty, almost seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, which is about about six and a half million adjusted in today's dollars. So this film definitely made money. The adjusted profit was about uh, almost uh, five point eight million dollars, leaving an adjusted profit per finished minute about uh, twenty eight thousand. Well, I think that we should probably rank it. Let's do it. You know the drill, everybody. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel uh, and uh, jump over there. You'll see this film in our list of recently added films. Click on it and add it to your own flick chart. And let's see how we do. Let's do it. Seven Samurai or back to the O Brother block. O Brother, where art thou? I think it's funny that I mentioned O Brother <laughs> already. Mm. Yeah, I'm struggling a little bit with how to approach this film because I really love this film. I really do. I'm I'm quite moved by it. Um, and yet, when approached with a film like Oh Brother, would I, which one would I put on first? In this case, it may actually be Seven Samurai. It's it's a tricky one because inevitably length becomes a factor, and I, yeah. I don't ever know if that's really fair. Um, but because uh, I, I feel like I would probably um, I would put Oh Brother on first just because it's shorter. Um, but I think Seven Samurai. Is, I so think I'm Sam go and Seven Samurai. Samurai I'm going to go and, and I think I already made my case. I have to stick with it. That this is a film you can put on just about anywhere, and you'll pick it up if you've already seen it once. You will enjoy wherever you you start watching it. That's my that's my position. So and you're length, sticking to it, it. I'm sticking to it because length is not as much of a factor as it was in, say, some of the other films like Yee. Well, I can see that. Seven Samurai or Never Let Me Go. I'm going to say Seven Samurai. Yeah, Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai or The Matrix. I'm going to say The Matrix. I am too. Seven Samurai or L.A. Confidential. I am L.A. Confidential. L.A. Confidential, please. Seven Samurai or Zodiac. Another um, long film. Yeah. I'm going to say Zodiac, though. Really? Oh, yeah. Boy, I'm on the fence. I'll give it to you because I'm so on the fence. <laughs> okay. But it's it's hard. Seven Samurai or Scarlet Street, speaking of uh, influences. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be Seven Samurai on this. Ah, oh, boy. Are you? I'm yeah. a little torn. I feel like Scarlet yeah. Street, but I'll give you I'll give you Seven Samurai, though. Seven Samurai or Shaun of the Dead. I am Shaun, Shaun of the, the Dead. Seven Samurai or Fargo. Uh, I think I might give it to Seven Samurai. I am on the fence too. I think I'm going to give it to Seven Samurai. All right. Well, there you go. Number 59 on our flick chart. Okay. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. For a three and a half hour 50s foreign film, uh, It's pre- that's pretty good. That, is that the good. film holds up just as well as it does. Yes, indeed. How's it do on your letterbox? It's a five star. Yeah, me too. Easy yeah. five. Easy five. Easy straight five. up. Yeah. All right. So the seven samurai family of films in our, our series this year, where do we go next? Next up, we do the uh, the fantastic uh, the Magnificent Seven. 
Going to be yeah. doing a little bit of the old cowboy action, which is going to be fun to see again. Yeah, I know. I've missed this one. It's been a while, and I am excited to uh, jump back into that one. I, You know, I've never seen any of the sequels to that one. I've only ever seen the original. I hear the sequels are all pretty terrible, though. Have oh, you yeah. seen any of the no, sequels? No, not. No, none of them. None of them. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, no. I, if anybody uh, loves the sequels, please let us know, because uh, are they worth seeing? Anybody who's seen the sequels, please write in, let us know on Twitter or Facebook uh, or shoot us an email, whatever. I'd like to know. If anybody out there cares a whit about the sequels to The Magnificent Seven. <laughs> How many people didn't actually even know that there were sequels to The Magnificent Seven? They were that right. interesting. There's like three sequels. Yeah. It's crazy. Crazy. Yeah. All right, Andy. I got to go to bed. All right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to go lay in a field of flowers, gaze at the trees blowing in the wind. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Uh, this one's by I Like Movies from February 14th, <laughs> January 2014. Uh, subject, I had people leaving the room. <laughs> it just doesn't, wow. Doesn't end well. Three hours and nine minutes. This was the DVD. Uh, the first one hour and 45 minutes was men talking, villagers being sad, some crying, and samurais barely swinging their swords. The last hour and whatever is left were men prepping for battle, super drawn-out battle, with no sword duels, just samurais swinging their swords, and villagers poking sharp sticks at the bad guys on their horses. Bad guys die. Villagers live happy. Samurais still sad and lonely. My friends left the room the first hour, not the best movie to watch with a group. I get the story. I get the struggle the villagers had from facing bandits. It was just too drawn out. If you're interested in the story, get it. But don't expect amazing, intense action. Expect a story. A long, talkative story. (laughs) Expect a story, Andy. That's another one that should go on the poster. Absolutely. Seven Samurai. (laughs) Expect a story. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Well, I've also got a one star by Tor, who says... (laughs) The Amazon Instant Video HD version of this great, great movie is not widescreen. It is very boxy and square in the middle of my computer screen and makes this magnificent movie look very average. The, the best part is the comments is we there's a uh, one person says this movie wasn't shot in widescreen. I believe <laughs> The Hidden Fortress was Kurosawa's first widescreen feature. And then another person who brilliantly says the video format is correct. It has never been a widescreen movie. Please take off your one point review. You disgrace yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the love actually of film <laughs> reviews on Amazon. <laughs> oh. Oh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.